Welcome to the latest episode of Public Power Now. I'm Paul Champoli, APPA's News Director. Our guest in this episode is Nick Johnson, Environmental Protection Specialist at the Bonneville Power Administration. Nick is leading an effort to incorporate a spatial analysis as it relates to the viability of pollinator habitat within BPA rights-of-way and facilities. Nick, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Paul. Sure thing. So, Nick, um, to get our conversation started before kind of diving into the meat of, of the topic at hand, I wanted to know if you could tell our listeners about what, what exactly your role is as an environmental prote- protection specialist at BPA is. Yeah, um, so I provide NEPA compliance to the National Environmental Protection Act compliance on BPA's uh, transmission projects. Um, I work in the environmental compliance, um, regulatory compliance group uh, at BPA. So mainly the group I work in, we look at uh, transmission projects, and most of those are large scale infrastructure upgrades or interconnections for generating facilities into BPA's grid. Uh, We do have another group that focuses more on like maintenance actions on like existing infrastructure. I work closely with those uh, individuals as well. And, and previously in my uh, former role as a natural resource specialist, uh, really focused on the the reoccurring maintenance actions out there. Uh, but now I'm more on the long range planning for larger projects. One one thought occurred to me in terms of a quick follow-up. I wanted to give our listeners some context in terms of the pollinator habit habitats. Why is that important um, for utilities and and to to keep track of and monitor? Well, you know, we're finding the professionals, you know, utilizing science and best methods. A lot of times, you can find um, processes that uh, also save. Uh, entities money, so companies or corporations or agencies money that also uh, support uh, local wildlife populations like pollinators. Uh, Uh Utilities have found that, you know, promoting certain types of vegetation that are lower growing, you know, provides those floral resources for pollinators. And it's also, you know, cheaper to maintain versus, um, you know, depending on whatever your strategy is in scheduling all the myriad of different uh, complex things that are to that, that to consider. Uh, certain types of management are just cheaper inherently in so smaller, lower growing stuff out there, especially in our in our rights of ways, uh, tends to be a little cheaper to manage uh, than you know letting things uh, go longer in between intervals and letting you know bigger, woodier plants to you know kind of come in and. Uh, in succession and kind of remove some of the lower stuff like wildflowers and uh, flowering bushes and stuff. Uh, that's helpful. Um, so in, in preparing for this interview, one of the things that jumped out at me is the fact that you developed a BPA pollinator model um, using nine major categories of environmental data. Can you offer additional details about this model and how has it helped BPA when it comes to pollinator populations within rights away and facilities in Washington state? Um, so this uh, model was uh, developed in inspiration. The Washington Department of Transportation had developed uh, a, a similar model looking at pollinator ha- habitat along their uh, roads rights of ways. So looking at that, you know, they were able to, you know, look at okay, we have X amount of funding for uh, pollinator habitat, and then they were trying to figure out where that money would be best spent. Uh, so they were ranking and classifying areas out there along their highways uh, and roads to to do that. So I, I kind of look at that and I was like, that's kind of interesting. You know, what if we could do that 
inside of our, our right-of-ways. You know, we care about pollinators. Uh, it could potentially offer areas of insight. Uh, BPA has a pollinator initiative. Uh, being a federal agency, we operate under uh, the law and many different laws, and we have a couple executive orders out there that state that we have to consider pollinator habitat um, in our operations and maintenance. So it's kind of one of those, oh, we can use data to potentially look at how, you know, how, how, how do we exist in the world around us? And then also, how can we do things better? Or just kind of, you know, some of our specialists manage vast amounts of land out there. So it's really just trying to figure out how to use technology to kind of narrow down your scope. So if you're interested in pollinator habitat somewhere and we have an ability to rank it, then you can, you know, use technology to give you something pretty quick to get a high level then to try to refine down where you can focus your efforts in funding. So that's kind of where that inspiration came from. So using a, a lot of the different, the similar um, data points that the Washington State Department of Tra Transportation had uh, developed, so we kind of were able to narrow it down and just apply BPAs and filters looking at BPA lands. But we're still largely in the developmental stages of the project. This is a um, kind of passion side project of the everyday work that I do at BPA. So it's kind of slow going in the development of it. Uh, we recently um, were just able to kind of do the same thing for um, Oregon as, as well. We were trying to, using a lot of different spatial data sets, we were trying to make sure that things were uh, similar enough across Unison. And so as we rolled this out for our entire operating area, you know, throughout our various different states, that it was similar enough that we could actually then say, hey, you know, these values are the same in each locating area in order to kind of like help our process from a program management standpoint. But, but you know, looking at land use and the proximity to pollinator dependent crops in protected areas of high conservation value, they're all pretty much similar in scope depending on where we're operating on. So just kind of trying to figure out that and then actually the spatial resolution of everything to try to make the unison of the model um, is is refined as we can and it doesn't end up being really really coarse so you know looking at data that is different spatial resolutions is really tr problematic when you start looking at larger areas you can't one data might be really really accurate and refined in and another data set isn't and you always have to go to the one that's less refined in order to have unison so as you start adding those nine categories or covariates into the model it just it, it gets really complex um but yeah uh, we're we're kind of waiting to you know, push this out to the larger BPA staff in our in-house geospatial program, enterprise program that we use. Uh, but up to date right now, like we do have funding that we allocate every year uh, to put to pollinator habitat. So this year we're actually going to be using any of that funding that's been identified for Washington. We'll be using this model to kind of narrow down uh, areas uh, where that could be best used. So whatever the project manager, they have a set of areas, we can actually pull up that project area and go in there and then pull up different pollinator habitat resolutions and kind of really focus if, if they have X amount of dollars for so many acres and we can actually focus that area on uh, whatever we want to maintain pollinator habitat in a, in a high area. We go out on the field and verify it. 
we can reseed those areas uh, to maintain it as a high. Or if we're looking to reestablish, we can go to areas that are like more medium or lower quality currently, but are nearby to areas of high value or pollinator dependent crops. Uh, you know, just kind of using that kind of human element to this money would be best spent here for whatever reason. But we really have that data to look at it spatially versus just what has happened in the past for people like, oh, I have an area that's a bunch of invasive plants and we're just going to go remove that and plant all this pollinator seed. Well, now we can actually look at it and say, well, it actually could be best spent here because of proximity to whatever resource that is dependent on that. So it's kind of exciting. It's really ground floor. It'll be the first year that we kind of employ this tool. And then from that, we're going to take the lessons learned and then try to further refine a, a process where we can then use this every year where it ends up being almost automated, where if you have uh, a set amount of money that equals a set amount of acres, you can develop a, a processes to just have uh, technology spit out those locations. And then you're going out and verify them versus having to find those areas and spend all that time right off the bat. You can, it's, it really will streamline everything. So it's, it's pretty exciting stuff uh, to be on the ground floor for. So you mentioned geospatial data. So I wanted to talk to you further about the role that geospatial data plays in the success of BPA's land management programs. And also, what are you specifically working on right now with respect to utilizing spatial data when it comes to pollinator habitat um, within uh, BPA rights-of-way and facilities? That's a good question, Paul. Uh, so at BPA, we use all spatial data for a lot of things. In my group specifically, uh, we use it for initial project reviews. So we'll get a project area, uh, a request for a project, and then we use that geospatial data to formulate a, a plan of action uh, on what we might need to do from uh, a compliance standpoint. So looking at different resources in the area to try to develop uh, field surveys or, you know, needed levels of resources to successfully uh, manage the environmental regulatory compliance aspect of that. Our other teams that do more land management, like vegetation management um, activities, will use the same data for areas that try to avoid. And also, when we actually give a compliance document, um, like a NEPA compliance document, it typically comes with some sort of uh, implementation measures that are geospatial spatially specific so they'll use those maps and um in their mapping software to actually avoid areas or do certain types of management activities differently in certain areas and then whoever the professionals are out in the field will use that data to narrow down resources um to, to actually survey or if it has an avoidance or different management um process tied to it that's kind of where they're using that so this is more it's an informing uh role there and specifically, uh, what I'm using the data when it comes to pollinator habitat is it's kind of I'm using it more than just pollinator habitat, but it's closely tie tied to that is I'm incorporating a more data analytics to automate that process. So I can do like a simple query of I get a project area, put that into our um, Esri um, ArcMap, which is a pretty popular geospatial processing program, and uh, I'll put the confines of a project area in there and hit a query, and then that will give me a list of all the resources inside that area that could potentially be, um, you know, impacted by that. And that pollinator habitat comes up where if, you know there's different levels of pollinator habitat values, 
can actually then zoom down to those areas and then look at what the project is proposing in that area to determine if there's going to be any impacts or if we can, uh, you know, improve that pollinator habitat within that project. You know, if we're getting funding or we're doing something like a road project or redevelopment and, you know, we can reseed or reestablish or just preserve there too. It's kind of where that all those tools kind of converge together um, there. So it's uh, super useful and and is becoming pretty quick as data analytics is uh, improving with um, the advent of different technologies. So now you are an active member in BPA's Pollinator Workgroup, as well as the Electric Power Research Institute's Power Pollinator Initiative. Can you offer additional details about the BPA Pollinator Workgroup, as well as your involvement with EPRI's Power and Pollinator Initiative? Yeah, so BPA's uh, internal work group, the Pollinator Work Group, is, is we're comprised of several different team members that are from different internal BPA work groups. So several of us uh, work alongside me with the larger transmission projects. Um, and then we have other folks that are more on the maintenance side of things. Um, and then some others do the fish and wildlife habitat restoration projects or compliance for those. Um, but, you know, we, the BPA internal team really we it's an educational role mostly is trying to push out um, why this is important what we're doing and how everyone can kind of have a role on different processes out there uh, considering um, the success of pollinator species we also our, our main thing that we spend a lot of time on uh, inside the group is uh, we do we BPA participates with uh, the national pollinator uh, week and um, which occurs every June and it is managed and was initiated by the Pollinator Partnership, which is a nonprofit and that started this. Um, and so we kind of organized BPA's involvement with that, which comes with you know having guest speakers and, and doing uh, educational seminars and showing the success of different BPA projects out there to the larger workforce. Um, and we also are you know recently you know, kind of a call to action, looking to work with um, our regional stakeholders and different land management entities out there that share areas within our managed land. So we uh, operate in a very large area. So it's kind of developing those partnerships with uh, different parks and recs and different uh, uh, land management entities out there, uh, kind of similar to what we have done in the past. Uh, we've partnered with uh, Portland Metro and Portland Parks uh, here in the Northwest, and we're able to reestablish some um, uh, pollinator habitat that you know gives a very, very big diversity of floral resources for a lot of native pollinators. So that's kind of what the work group does is trying to establish those partnerships and um, you know kind of see those opportunities and just kind of you know get all the organizing parts together because it's just it takes a lot of time. This is an additional work requirement to everyone's pretty um, heavy workload. So it, just, it really just helps everyone kind of spread that out and remain successful. And then the the EPRI, so the Edison Power Research Institute, has a power and pollinator uh, initiative. The BPA is a, a member of EPRI. Uh, we pay our membership fees every year as a utility. And then that comes with several different uh, um, benefits there. And one of them being that we belong to a several um, scientific initiatives and one of them is a pollinator um, initiative which is a bunch of utilities that are 
doing similar stuff that BPA is, and it's a sharing of information back and forth. And then, so I'm part of the monthly meetings of that um, group kind of representing BPA with several other BPA staff, but I'm also involved with the Western Area Utilities small group, which is focusing more on issues that are unique to operating in the West. So, you know, you know promoting pollinator habitat in the U.S. West is vastly different than on the East Coast, uh, especially with different plant communities. And, you know, we have drier summers. So it's really, you know, so our implementation procedures of trying to do some of these projects are, you know, different. So we, uh, all the Western utilities are, we meet uh, bi-monthly and we kind of discuss successes and um, kind of what each other is doing and ideas and kind of it's, it's very, very helpful. We also, um, EPRI has released a new monarch uh, habitat model, which is really cutting edge out there. And BPA is potentially, uh, or I'm part of the team that's looking at that to incorporate it into our processes and project reviews, mainly with the uh, eye on uh, the Endangered Species Act uh, Section 7 compliance, which is BPA's legal requirement to uh, consider any type of species that are listed under the Endangered Species Act, which the monarch butterfly is a candidate species and with an expected listing to come in a couple of years. So uh, BPA will have to you know, do project reviews uh, and ensure that we're not uh, in inadvertently impacting uh, monarch habitat out there. So that, that model and that um, information sharing will be very pivotal to BPA success to remain compliant under the Endangered Species Act uh, when the monarch butterfly is listed. So the idea there is to try to incorporate their uh, spatial data if you know it ends up becoming sufficient enough under whatever the final uh, listing rules are uh, to incorporate that into different tools, uh, whether it be what we call regional programmatic agreements. So BPA does a lot of similar projects and scope and um, actions that we can actually you know, develop some of these processes using data like I've developed in uh, other entities to try to streamline the permitting of that to ensure that BPA is, hey, we're, we're doing this action and you know, we're compliant because we're using all these different review processes and we've employed professionals to go out and do surveys based on you know, uh, using this data to try to narrow down um, actions and, and then protections underneath the law. So. It's a uh, pretty uh, revolutionary able to um, really save a lot of uh, workload of redundancies there uh, by using this type of data and establishing these types of partnerships and compliance uh, pieces. So, Nick, um, just wanted to drill down further. Can you offer a specific example of a pollinator work? I'm sure our listeners would love to know more in terms of specific example. Yeah, so um, BPA like I said before, um, have several projects out there where we've considered pollinator habitat. Um, we've done plantings or rehabilitation of uh, habitat out there. But recently, um, we have finished a, uh, a large building uh, replacement project on our BPA's Ross campus, which is located in Vancouver, Washington. Um, and in that, we uh, are Reestablish some areas that once was a monoculture lawns and have to be mowed uh, as pollinator habitat. And uh, we got some recognition with um, in that addition of uh, buildings that, hey, we're kind of rethinking the mold of how we manage lands. So instead of having to mow this hillside all the time, it's now a wildflower garden in areas that support local pollinators. So that you know comes with the added benefit of the, the maintenance reduce maintenance costs that are reoccurring and also the, the 
producing a habitat that does support a, a lot of uh, struggling uh, species out there to ha- give them the pollinator uh, floral resources throughout an entire growing season uh, so they can forage for food and have uh, habitat just in general. And you refer to struggling species specifically? Yeah, so there's yeah, all pollinator species are struggling. Right. Um, so, yeah, the, you know, it's a lot of them looking at the, the western bumblebee and just, mm. just there's, a, you know, we have honeybees as well that are part of that that are non-natives. But uh, so there is a whole bunch. Uh, the list is quite uh, long, but it's, uh, like the monarch butterfly, there are several out there that their populations are in decline. So and mainly that's due to habitat loss and just loss of floral resources throughout an entire growing season. So the generalistic answer there is it supports pretty much all, all of them out there that can find it and eat it, so to speak. All right, great, Nick. Well, thanks again so much for your time. It's been a very informative conversation. I think this might be the first time we've had an episode focusing on on the topic of um, pollinator habitats. So I'm sure there will be a lot of listeners out there who will appreciate your insights into this topic. And as usual, we would love to have you back um, to discuss uh, anything that we discussed today as well. And I'm sure there'll be other things on your plate uh, between now and say six months from now. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Paul. Thanks for having me. Sure thing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Public Power Now, which is produced by Julio Guerrero, graphic and digital designer at APPA. I'm Paul Schimpel, and we'll be back next week with more from the world of public power.